Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Good morning, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm a little sad today. How are you? Uh, likewise. Um, uh, I think uh, both of us are a little sad because uh, we are recording uh, this episode uh, a mere uh, few days after the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, um, so uh, today's episode is going to be about uh, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, what was her legacy both before and on the court? Uh, uh, if we have time, we'll probably uh, get to what will be the uh, impact of uh, the vacancy on the court on the upcoming fall elections. Um, and then if we have time, um, uh, I would like to speak a little bit about uh, uh, something that I always admired about both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. So uh, listeners, if our tone seems to be a little somber this morning, um, it's because uh, um, I think we knew at some point we would have to record this episode. Um, Justice Ginsburg was 87. Um, she had suffered multiple bouts of cancer. Um, and uh, so we knew at some point if we were still recording the podcast, uh, there would be an episode about Justice Ginsburg. But uh, I don't think either one of us uh, uh, expected that we would have to do so um, a mere six weeks before the <laughs> fall Although, 2020 elections. I have to say, I shouldn't be surprised because the last um, death on the Supreme Court that caused consternation was her best friend Scalia. So it's not surprising to me, I guess, in some way. That, that they managed to align that up somehow yeah. physically uh, for it to be um, for, for it to listeners be who are not I, I, I had hoped that I would that I would be considerably older by the time we had to record this episode yeah for uh, listeners uh, who don't follow the Supreme Court um, closely and shame on you for not doing so um. yeah, we are judging you <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, but it's silent judgment most of the time. Yeah. And mind you, as I joke with my students, um, not all of you will become a Supreme Court um, uh, aficionado like uh, your professor is, but you should be. Um, <laughs> right. Or you should learn to fake it publicly. Okay. But for those of you who uh, don't follow the court, what Nia is referencing is that in 2016, in February of 2016, um, in fact, I think it was uh, Valentine's Day weekend, <laughs> um, uh, Scalia died uh, while on a hunting trip. And it led to the uh, infamous, at least according to Democrats, stolen Supreme Court seat because President Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace uh, Justice Scalia and the Senate Republicans refused uh, to uh, consider the nomination. 
under the grounds that it was an election year and they felt that the new president should be the one to seat the new justice. And the current um, Senate leader who was the, also the Senate leader then has changed his mind and decided that they should seat a justice as quickly as possible under... Oh yeah, the hypocrisy here of both political parties right now, okay, is that it, fever it's pitch. It's pretty thick. Yes. Yeah. So you, you, you get the, 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 the Senate uh, Republicans, once again in the majority, um, saying that they will, okay, consider whoever the president nominates. Um, uh, you have Democrats saying, well, Trump should not nominate somebody, even though Barack Obama went ahead and nominated somebody, okay, during an election year. So, I mean, the, the hypocrisy of both political parties is at fever pitch. Um, as, I, as I explained to my students yesterday, okay, nobody's coming out of this with clean hands. Oh, no. Okay. Everybody looks bad. Yeah. The only person who doesn't look bad right now is Justice Ginsburg. Sure. Um, and Justice Roberts, who wrote a very um, a kind statement about... The, sure. the, the pain that the court was in, but the hope that that um, that that people would follow in her legacy of caring deeply about social justice and social equality. So I, I thought he did a, a J. Rob came through um, and did it. I thought a nice job with that. It's hard, I would assume, to find the right tone with that because he doesn't want to be political. He doesn't want to be part of the fracas that's going on across the, what is it, across the big concrete barriers um, on the other side of the street. I, he I wants mean, to stay out of all of that. For every, every remaining justice on the Supreme Court, okay, it's particularly difficult because this is a person who in most instances they've worked with for years. And even if they disagreed with her, and by the way, John, John Roberts, Okay, most Supreme Court terms disagreed with her, you know, roughly, you know, 70 to 75% of the time, right? But, you know, they work with these people, you know, as I tell my students, this is a small group collegial body. Um, if you have to work with the same folks year after year in a small group, okay, you basically got a fundamental choice. Either you try to get along or that's a miserable experience every day. Yeah. Okay, every day. Okay, and- Well, and at any given time, there's only like 12 Supreme Court justices alive. Like it's an incredibly- Small number. Small number. Yeah, it, right? It's along the lines of the presidency, right? Like there, so, yeah. there aren't a lot of living presidents at one time. There are not a lot of living Supreme Court justices at one time. And most people don't retire, they pass away. And they're all aware of what Ginsburg had to go through. I mean, and I think this is a really good starting point, okay? For those of you who don't know, um, you know, Justice Ginsburg, um, and I'm not going to do the full biography here. You can go ahead and look up her full biography. But she would have been an important figure in American legal, you know, the, the, the American legal regime 
or society, even if she had never been uh, nominated to serve on the federal judiciary. Um, what she had to go through first to get her law degree, okay, and then what she suffered in regards to employment discrimination because she was a woman, okay, was very customary of the 1960s, okay. Um, you know, she attended Harvard uh, with her husband. Um, she basically took care of him as he uh, suffered through a bout of testicular cancer, okay. This is when she had a baby to take care of, and she was in law school. Then he graduates, gets a job in New York, and she does what many spouses do, particularly at that time, female spouses. She followed him to New York, okay? Finished her law degree at Columbia, finishing first in her class, okay? And then she couldn't get a meaningful job out of law school, even though she graduated from an Ivy League law school first in her class. They were, she, I think she was offered secretarial positions. Yeah, she and like O'Connor. She okay. was what, why should we hire, why should we give you a man's place? Yeah, because in, 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 part, the part, in part the thinking was, at some point, you're gonna stop working to go ahead and have more kids. That was what the expectation was. Right? And that you'll be the one to stay home and take care of them. Yes. So she eventually takes a full-time uh, job at Rutgers Law School. Now, not, I'm not disparaging Rutgers Law School, right? But at the time, Rutgers Law School, okay, again, this is a person who graduated first in her class from Columbia, okay? And she's taking a law school job at Rutgers because in part, that was where she could get full-time employment. And but she then, had to lie about being her second pregnancy. She had to hide yes. her second pregnancy to get her contract renewed. Yes. She borrowed clothes that didn't fit her so that she could pretend that she was just getting a, a little weight, right? Like so yeah. that she could get her contract renewed. Because if you had, had if she'd had a baby and they had known that was coming they would not have renewed her contract. After a it's, few it's years phenomenal. at Rutgers, after a few years at Rutgers, she um, then volunteered to head up uh, a new project with the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, the Women's Rights Project. And under her leadership and also her arguments, written briefs and oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court, she fundamentally changed how um, the classification of gender was treated in American law. Wait, I want to ask you a quick question about something you just said. So she was a member of the Supreme Court Bar, which is a relatively elite group of people, right? Just generally. There's not a whole bunch of people admitted to the Supreme Court Bar. Is that well, you're kind of sort of jumping ahead here, Nia, I'm sorry. because you don't have to be part of the Supreme Court Bar unless the Supreme Court first takes your what? Your case. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But when they took the first case that she argued, which was, I want to say it's Reed versus Reed. Yep, 1971. At that time, okay, there were next to no women who had been admitted to the Supreme Court bar. 
And the general rule is, unless you're part of the Supreme Court bar, you don't get to argue oral arguments in front of the court. It's just like a, any state bar um, in regards to uh, filing a lawsuit um, and you know making the argument in front of a state court. If you're not a, a part of the bar, then you usually have to have with you somebody who has been admitted to the state bar, okay? Okay. So it was highly unusual, highly unusual, okay, that, you know, she was, you know, she became a member of the Supreme Court bar, okay? Now, today, the numbers are still overwhelmingly male to female in regards to the Supreme Court bar, but it's not as unusual, okay? It's not as unusual, right? So breaking ground just by being there. There. Yeah, right. right? I mean, she was breaking ground when she was at Rutgers Law School and she became a tenured, you know, professor. There were very few tenured female professors in all of higher education in the United States, but particularly law schools, right? Particularly law schools. Well, she was undeniably brilliant. I mean, I don't think that they could have that they could deny her brilliance. Yeah. So, uh, pardon me, listeners. Despite the fact that she was a woman. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's all. And that was always part of her life experience, right? Okay. Um, you know, not only did she have to go ahead and demonstrate that she was as smart as men, okay, she had to go ahead and do so in spite of her gender, okay, in spite of her gender. Um, I mean, what a terrible burden okay, to have to encounter. Yes, you know, know, first you got to go ahead and satisfy, you know, basic, you know, credentials, you know, you know, do you have the degree? Are you smart enough? Okay. Um, Do you understand legal arguments? Can you make legal arguments? But then you also got to go ahead and say, yes, I can do all this. And oh, yeah, by the way, not for nothing, I am a woman. Okay. But she changed how gender was viewed in American law. And her basic argument was this, okay? Gender should be a suspect classification. Courts should be suspect of any law or regulation that treat the genders differently. And as we were talking before we began recording this morning, Nia you know, uh, uh, really picked up on um, uh, uh, something of, she did something with her strategy that was just brilliant. When she was arguing these cases in front of the Supreme Court, she frequently brought cases where men were treated differently than women simply because they were men. And it forced the justices to come to grips with how gender was frequently used as a disqualifying condition, okay? So, you know, the, the, the classic example uh, about this was the uh, Frontiera versus Richardson case from uh, 1973. The military had a rule, okay, um, that uh, benefits could only be given to females and children, 
because the assumption was, okay, most members of the military would be male. So if they died or they got injured, okay, became incapacitated, whatever the case may be, okay, the benefits, okay, could only be given to wives and children. And in the Frontier versus Richardson case, okay, you actually had a female service member whose husband was denied benefits because of his gender. And she forced the court to go ahead and say, hey, wait a minute here, that's wrong. Okay, well, if it's wrong in this instance because the man was being discriminated against, how can laws to go ahead and treat women, okay, the same way, how can they be constitutional? So by forcing an all-male court to take a look at how some laws discriminated against men, it opened their eyes to all the ways in American law that women were considered second-class citizens. Now, what Ginsburg hoped for was that gender would be, the, would be treated the same way as race. In American law, since Brown versus Board of Education, any law or regulation that uh, uses race as a category, okay, is re receives strict scrutiny, meaning uh, the government has to show first, it serves a compelling interest, second, it is narrowly tailored, the law or program is, to achieve that compelling interest. Now, lawyers like to joke, okay, strict scrutiny is, if you will, strict in theory, fatal in fact, because when it gets applied, most, if not all laws are deemed unconstitutional because they can't pass strict scrutiny, okay? Race in most instances is just, excuse my language, a bullshit classification, okay? Okay. It's irrelevant to, the, to what you're trying to achieve. Achieve, that's right. Ginsburg wanted the same for gender. And she almost got there. But she could, ne she could never get the fifth vote on the court. Instead, what the court came up with is what's called intermediate scrutiny. Okay? Intermediate scrutiny. Basically, with intermediate scrutiny, the court asks of the government, can you show that there is a legitimate, not compelling, but legitimate interest to treat the genders differently? And is the law or program rationally related to that legitimate purpose? Okay. So it's not as severe a standard as strict scrutiny, but it is more severe, more exacting than the standard that's used for every other law, which is known as the rational basis test. Basically, uh, listeners, most laws, government regulations, okay, all the government has to show if it is challenged in court is that there was some rational basis for the law or for the regulation. We didn't just make it up. There was actually, we did have a reason. We did have a reason. It may not be the best one, it may not even be the most convincing to the court, okay? But there was a reason. There was a reason, okay? 
in, in NIA, and I'm just going to mention one more case, okay? Uh, and it's one that I teach all the time in constitutional law. Craig versus Born, 1976. Oklahoma passed a law uh, that uh, raised the drinking age for males from 18 to 21. Because the state of Oregon, okay, concluded that young males were more likely to drink and then get behind the wheel of an automobile, which then led to more accidents. So Oklahoma said, okay, um, we have a good reason here. We have a legitimate reason to treat males differently than females. Okay, now Craig, okay, <laughs> who wanted to drink when he was 18, okay, and couldn't in Oklahoma challenge the law, okay? It goes to the Supreme Court, and the court used intermediate scrutiny to rule against Oklahoma, because basically the court concluded, okay, there was only, what was it, like one-tenth of one percent difference between males and females drinking and getting behind the wheel. So the statistical difference was so minuscule that according to the Supreme Court, there was no good reason to treat the genders differently. As I think the majority opinion, I think uh, written by Justice Brennan concluded, you know, here's what we found out. Young people do what? They do stupid things with alcohol, okay? And it doesn't matter. Genders. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, right? It doesn't matter, right? But again, it's because of Ginsburg's, if you will, legal strategy and arguments in front of the court that all of a sudden gender became a suspect classification. If she had done nothing else, Nia, okay, she rewrote constitutional law as it relates to the genders, okay? That's a stunning accomplishment. I mean, that's what Thurgood Marshall did uh, with segregation, right? That's what Lewis Brandeis did at the turn of the 20th century in getting courts to focus on the impact of the law. Even if none of those folks became Supreme Court justices, they would have had this huge impact, okay, on American law. But then she gets nominated to serve on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals by Jimmy Carter in 1980. And oh yeah, by the way, she was nominated and she was voted on after Carter lost the election. <laughs> Wait, before we get there, can I, can I bring up a small anecdote that I think says a lot about her as a person? Yeah. So when she was teaching at Rutgers, and she's doing this ACLU rally. She's doing all of this at the same time because there were transition periods there. Her son apparently had problems at school. And so the school would call her every time he got into trouble. And it was for little things, but they were calling her all the time. And she finally said, he has two parents, call, alternate call, alternate calls, call his father, then call me. And somehow the call stopped because what was important to call her about 
wasn't important to call her lawyer, tax lawyer husband about, right? It was, it's that kind of thing that she was trying to change, this idea that somehow her work wasn't as important as his work. Yeah. Her, when what she was doing is what you're talking about, this phenomenal sea change in how women are viewed in the work. Like you can no longer be fired for being pregnant. That's not okay. Like By the way, Nia, that's that attitude me. still exists in schools. You know, without going into too many details about my own personal life, um, I share custody of my eight-year-old daughter. If something happens to her, even on the days that I have custody, okay, and even though the school has been told, okay, that on these days, Mackenzie's father should be called, they always call her, call Mackenzie's mother first. The attitude still exists, okay? Even though I go to all the events, okay? I participate in all the parent-teacher conferences, okay? Mackenzie, if you listen to her talk, watch her behavior, okay? She is, you know, amalgamation, a combination of both her mother and quite obviously her father, okay? It doesn't matter, okay? There is still that bias, okay? that women's work is less important and that the mother is the, if you will, primary caregiver. It still happens. It does, but it happens less. Okay, fine, fair I, enough. Yeah. Don't you think that, that there's less? Well, I, I, I don't know because, you know, I, I, I am the, uh, uh, I'm a child uh, of, of a, a divorce, you know, uh, uh, of a divorce, um, so there was only one parent to get called, okay? And strong single women. But, but I mean, when she entered... I understand your point, yeah. When she entered the fray, being fired for being pregnant was normal. Like that, oh, well, yeah. we have to let you go because you're clearly going to stay home and have more babies and blah, 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 blah. And, and now... That's actually illegal. You can bring a lawsuit against your institution and say you can't discriminate me, discriminate against me based on the fact that I have to be the one to birth the child versus my husband, who does not have to be the one to birth the child. Like men were not fired for being fathers, but women were fired for being mothers. So I, I just think she, that's an amazing contribution that's happened in my lifetime. I was born in, in 1967. I know, I'm a thousand years old. But, um, and just in my lifetime, women have, women have incredibly benefited from people like Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor and the other women who were fighting for that sort of, no, no, women are smart, women can do these things and they should be allowed to do these things because they have something to say. Um, I. I Anyway, it's just, it was a telling thing to me that, that once she told them to do that, the calls stopped because they didn't want to bother her husband with those things. Well, yeah, don't bother me with them either. If it's serious, call me. If it's not, move yeah. on. Yeah. Um, but she, so she ends up in the federal court system first. Right? She, you don't leap to Supreme Court. 
does anybody ever just leap to the Supreme Court or do they mostly serve in a federal position in some way? Or is um, uh, the, 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 the modern practice is um, you got to serve either as a state Supreme Court judge or a lower federal court judge. Okay. Um, you know, there have been some noteworthy exceptions to that. I mean, Elena Kagan, who's currently on the Supreme Court, um, was never a judge. On the other hand, she was the Solicitor General for the Obama administration, which meant she, you know, uh, uh, was the administration's primary legal advocate in front of the Supreme Court. So, I mean, she argued a, a, a number of cases in front of the Supreme Court. Um, but there's actually a parallel there between Ginsburg's experience and Kagan's experience. Uh, when Ginsburg was nominated by Jimmy Carter, President Carter, to serve on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, she was she had no judicial experience. Um, but she was nominated to what most scholars believe is the second most important federal court in our country. Uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals hears all the appeals of what federal agencies do. Not all of them, but most of them. Why? Because most federal agencies are headquartered in D.C., okay? Um, and it's, a, it's an important court. I mean, Ginsburg, Scalia, Thomas, Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, they all served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's, it's considered, you know, one of the, the, one of the best, if you will, uh, uh, grounds to jump up to the court. Okay. Okay. So she gets on there in 1980 um, and um, served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals until 1993 when Bill Clinton uh, nominated her to replace uh, Byron White, uh, the subject of my dissertation, uh, when Byron White decided to retire. Now, you want, a, uh, Neil, you want a good sign of how the nomination process has changed? The vote to confirm Ginsburg to sit on the Supreme Court was 96 to 3. 96 to 3. Okay. And an abstention? Yeah, there was an abstention. Okay. Wow. Now, I, I don't have an opinion about this Supreme Court nomination. Or, or, or it could have been this. Or I know her and I can't, I shouldn't. Or, or the vote was so overwhelming that there was a senator who was sick or there was a, you know, a Senate vacancy. But my larger point here is everybody knew she was liberal, right? Voted for her anyway. Okay, but her qualifications were so obvious, okay, that even hardcore Republicans, hardcore conservative Southern Democrats were like, yes, she's, you know, qualified, right? There's nothing about this woman that is not qualified. Today, we can't even go ahead and get, okay, on, you know, on folks like, you know, I'll just give two examples, Elena Kagan and John Roberts, both of them had well over 30 votes against them. Elena Kagan and John Roberts 
We couldn't get, I suspect we could not get a 96 vote on mosquitoes are bad. Yes, I, mean, I agree like, with you. It, it's become that hyper-polarized. Right, right. It, it would be ridiculous. We, like, can we all vote that, you know, that, I don't know, that a comet hitting the earth is a bad thing and there'd be 30 votes. No, you don't know that. Comets might be wonderful. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, dinosaurs, remember, extinction, but yeah. So, so it is a pretty, it does say a lot about her and their respect for her, their respect for oh. her mind, their respect for her. Sure, okay. And, 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 and everybody knew she was gonna be a liberal, right? I mean, it would have been a huge shock if she had turned out to be even a moderate, okay? Wouldn't that have been hilarious if she'd gotten on the court and been like, nope, nope to all the liberal stuff that everybody would have freaked out. Yeah, right? But yeah, no, that wasn't going to happen. Um, while she was on the court, uh, this was a court um, that numerically um, has been controlled by Supreme Court justices uh, appointed by Republican presidents. At no point while she was on the Supreme Court were there a majority liberals, you know, uh, justices appointed by Democratic presidents, okay? Oh, really? In the entire... The entire time she was on the court, she was at most one of four liberals, okay? Or, you know, four justices appointed by Democratic presidents. So... Most of her, uh, Nia, most of her significant opinions, okay, were written in dissents. Um, and as I like to joke with my students, okay, she, like her good buddy, Justice Scalia, on the other side of the ideological spectrum, most of their noteworthy opinions were written as dissents. I have a question about that. Yeah. Or rather... So she made a statement at some point that, it, relatively recently, that she that she would not outlive her dissents, right? Like that her dissents would may someday make changes to the court. And I think you've said that too. That sometimes it takes a little while for a dissent to kind of kind of ferment and grow, but then at some point it becomes a way that the court can change again. Mm-hmm. So do you think that'll be true with her legacy? Um, or is it just too hard to predict? Because no, it's too hard to predict. I mean, in many of the cases where she wrote a dissent, it was five to four. You know, so uh, you could argue um, that, you know, a, a couple deaths, retirements, okay, while the president is a Democrat, and the Senate is controlled by the Democratic Party, then you could see some of her dissents being dusted off by a new Supreme Court majority that says, you know, as Justice Ginsburg wrote in dissent in blah, blah, blah case, okay, that could happen. On the other hand, okay, um, you know, some of the dissents that end up becoming majority opinions don't happen for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. <laughs> okay. Long time to wait. Yeah, it's a long time to wait, right? Um, so, I mean, it really does depend. I mean, a lot of it depends on, you know, who's on the court, right? Who's on the court? Um, 
um, you know, uh, 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 you know, when William Rehnquist writing in the 1970s, um, where he was frequently railing about how broad Congress's Commerce Clause authority was, he was writing as a solo dissent, like nobody else on the Supreme Court agreed with him. By the time he left the court, there was a narrow majority of the court that said, yeah, there's something to what you said in the 1970s. That happens very infrequently, Mia, very infrequently, okay? Well, it just doesn't move that quickly in no. your lifetime. No, no, nope. I mean, that's the thing, and I tell students this all the time. If you think going to court to get policy change is quicker, leads to more decisive policy change than going through the legislative bodies or even the executive branch, okay, you're going to be frequently wrong and frustrated because of anything that this country's history has demonstrated is that change in the law takes decades, if not generations. Okay. Yeah, when you mentioned your your case earlier where he was 18 and he wanted to be able to drink, I thought, well, shoot, by the time that gets to the Supreme Court, he will be able to drink. <laughs> That's going to take forever. Okay. Not quite. Yeah. But I mean, be, 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 well, in part, listeners, what Nia is pointing to is that just the administration of court cases takes a while. Appeals, ah. appeals take time. Okay. But... My larger point is, you know, uh, and this is slightly off target, but since we're talking about Ginsburg, really it isn't, the notion of privacy. Nia, the first time privacy as a legal concept was written about in a law review article was at the turn of the 20th century, okay? We don't get the Supreme Court acknowledging a right to privacy for first married couples until 1965. That's six plus decades, okay? A woman's right to choose doesn't come for another eight years after that, okay? So if you think about the notion of privacy, a right to privacy, which by the way, what the Supreme Court went ahead and said a right to privacy meant in the 1960s and the 1970s is grossly different than what Louis Brandeis as a private attorney was arguing in Harvard Law Review at the turn of the 20th century, okay? But again, that's the length of time it takes for legal concepts to take root for people to start making arguments about them and then either have legislative bodies or courts go ahead and say, yes, that makes sense. Well, it makes sense too, because you have, you very rarely do have abrupt cultural change. Yeah, yeah. Cultural change is a slow process. What, I mean, the, the and this is, um, well, it, it's just, I, I think that, isn't there something about the arc of justice is incredibly long, but it bends to it bends towards um, oh I, I've lost the quote now. But anyway, um, 
so she so she serves on the federal court she's a she's she gets her she passes her nomination with 96 votes which again as we know shockingly because there's absolutely no way anybody could get 96 votes for anything now um and then she serves on the supreme court and she becomes deeply close to Scalia to Antonin Scalia in a way that I think people were very surprised by because they were polar opposites politically. Would you not say? He's uh, well, like he's conservative. He's well, but politically, ideologically, but really, their friendship Nia started on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Oh, really? So they served there together. I didn't. They know served that. there together, okay. right? In fact, when Byron White retired. Um, Scalia, in a conversation with a Clinton administration higher up, went ahead and uh, explicitly suggested that the Clinton administration uh, uh, consider Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even was, though they were already different at that time, right? Was he on the court at that point? Yes, yes. So okay. Like, you should put her on the court. She's amazing. Oh, hey, by the way, uh, uh, Scalia also went ahead and suggested to the Obama administration that they pick Elena Kagan. Okay. In he part because the opposition women. Oh, I mean, he loved to argue, right? He loved to argue. Okay. But you are pointing to one of the, the great friendships of polar opposites in the history of the Supreme Court. He's loud, he's brash, he's charismatic. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you ever listened to an interview with her, even before, you know, the last few years, where she, you know, frequently spoke very softly, almost in a whisper. I mean, even, you know, when she was younger, she was not loud, okay? She was quiet, she was determined. She's this very small individual. I mean, Scalia wasn't much taller than her, but because of his personality, it seemed like he was this, you know, big person who just filled the room. So personality was different, ideologically different, okay? Well, and apparently um, Justice Ginsburg paused quite a bit before she would answer a question. She would stop and think and, and be measured for the most part, although she kind of boogered up when she spoke about Donald Trump, but- yeah. And she apologized, right? She spoke off the cuff, and, and I, I'm sure she was thinking, and this is why I don't do this. <laughs> but, but she was that sort of, or, or at least I'm given to understand in interviews that reporters had to be patient and wait because she was thinking through things. Whereas Scalia was, I mean, he just answered like bang, 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 right? Sometimes stream of consciousness. He would work you through his thought as he was answering. So even there... Even their speaking styles were different, <laughs> were oh. so opposite of each other. But he respected her intellectually. She respected him intellectually. She is on the record as saying that um, other than her husband, the person who could make her laugh the most was Scalia, okay? They had shared interests. They both loved opera. Okay, they both loved the law, 
Okay, it's quite obvious. Um, um, they spent. Like argue right, like. Excuse me. They both like to argue, right? Like when oh, they sure. were doing dissents, didn't they often give them to each other early to, so that yeah. they could make arguments? Yeah, in, 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 in a lot of students, when they found out, find this out about Scalia, if Scalia was in the dissent, it was his practice to hurry up and finish his dissent, at least a draft of it, and give it to whoever was writing the majority opinion, okay? because he knew that they would want to be able to respond to his most, if you will, salient points in his dissent, because he thought that that was, you know, good collegial practice. And he, and he did it most infamously with Ginsburg in the VMI case, um, um, uh, where the court in 1996 in U.S. versus Virginia ruled that uh, VMI's male-only admissions policy violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion. The only dissent in that case was Scalia, okay? Scalia, um, and, and you can look this up on YouTube because um, Ginsburg's talked about it. Um, Ginsburg was leaving the court to go to a judicial conference for the weekend. And before she left the Supreme Court building, uh, uh, Scalia showed up with um, a hard copy of his draft dissent and said, take a look at this. You might, you know, you might appreciate, okay, being able to respond. So she read it on the flight. She thought about it over the weekend. And you can actually see in her majority opinion Okay, three or four points where she was specifically responding to criticisms made by Scalia in his dissent. Okay, you don't do that if you don't like the other person, if well, you don't respect the other person. You also, it, it, it also shows his respect for the law. He wants the law to be as... yes clear and as cleanly written, right? Like if she, if he comes up with points and she hasn't touched on them, then it leaves doubt. It leaves room for doubt. Whereas his, his desire to see the, the opinions be written as cleanly as possible so that it, it doesn't cast more question than it answers. Yeah. But and that's it a really professional and and personal love of the law. To yeah, do I mean, it, it, that is something that both of them shared, okay? Yes, you know, both of them wrote, shall we say, more entertainingly when they were in the dissent, okay? Okay, particularly Scalia. But I, I, I got to admit, Nia, before uh, we recorded this podcast, I read through easily a couple uh, dozen of uh, Ginsburg's uh, dissenting opinions, oh, you could tell she was upset, right? The the energy, the 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 uh, the, the vehemence of the language, okay, just came through. But with both of them, they love to be clear, okay. They thought the court was best when the court spoke clearly, okay. And the only way, and and, and I tell students this all the time. You want your writing to get better? 
give it to somebody who doesn't think like you, who doesn't believe as you do, because they will force you to go ahead and be as clear as possible. Even if they oppose what you have to say, okay, um, they are going to force you to write better. Always, always talking to someone in the opposition improves your argument because it helps you understand where you believe something just because you believe it and where you believe something because you have evidence for believing the thing. And it and, forces you to exp explain things better. Right. And you need to be able to learn to let go of, I just believe this because I believe this. Yeah. You need to be able to say, no, I have a rational, like I can rationally explain why I believe the thing I believe. I, I think they made each other better justices. And frankly, I think Scalia and Ginsburg both made other justices better justices by doing that, by saying, why? Why do you believe that? What's, what, what's your holding belief? What's the underlying reason? And the other person has to say, they have to get beyond instinct, right? Because it's just what I believe. Well, that doesn't cut it. You have to yeah, with neither with neither of them could you go ahead and say, well, everybody thinks that way. Right, or just because. Okay. No. I mean, because, and again, I pointed this out to students. I said, yes, Ginsburg quite obviously suffered gender discrimination in her life, in her career, etc. But I said, you also got to remember, folks, Scalia was an Italian-American, second generation, Okay. Um, and at a time in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, where Italian Americans who were Catholic, practicing Catholics, were still being discriminated against, right? right? Um, so, um, and, and there, there are other shared things between them, right? Um, you know, you know, Gins Ginsburg has said this, she never lacked for love as a child, okay? Her family put her on a pedestal. Scalia, likewise, he was the only child, okay, in an Italian-American family, and he had no cousins. This was a person who got doted on, right? You know, I remind my students all the time, you want, you want to see a shared person, personal trait among most Supreme Court justices, okay? They were frequently told at a very early age, one, they were loved, and two, they were smart. And they believe that they've been smart most of their lives. In fact, they frequently believe they are the smartest person in the room, okay? Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing for a Supreme Court. I'm sorry? That's not necessarily a bad thing when you got a whole bunch of smart people on the court. Yeah, although I would imagine that it, like, <laughs> but it also leads to some really interesting arguments, um, uh, not just about the law, but about other things, because sure. being smart. But they're also used to, I think we forget sometimes that most of the justices have come up through judgeships in some way. They are used to tempering their ideas by the act of listening. Like judges, almost their entire job is just active listening. I need to listen for certain cues, for certain things. 
right? I need to, I need to be paying attention and listening all the time. So I imagine they're actually really good at conversation because they're used to listening to other people. They're used to listening for what, for, for what will lead them to make a good decision. Yeah, you and I, for instance, talked about this uh, in reference to Clarence Thomas, who got criticized because he didn't speak during oral arguments for well over a decade. Um, and both you and I joked in a previous podcast episode, but imagine how good he got at listening. Oh. Okay, I mean, think about it. How good a conversationalist he is in private. Oh my goodness, yes, right? I mean, by all accounts, he's probably the best known and best liked justice among the support staff at the at the Supreme Court, okay? He knows everybody's names, okay? He knows their family members, their favorite sports teams, how they're doing physically, medically, etc., right? Yeah. This does but not they go to him with problems. Yeah, this does not surprise me, right? <laughs> this does not surprise me at all, okay? Uh, you know, um there's a book that just got released. Um, uh, in fact, I think it was last week. Um, the Essential Scalia on the Constitution, the Courts, and the uh, Rule of Law. Um, and in the introduction, um, uh, the introduction is done by Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, Judge uh, Jeff Sutton. And I believe Sutton is a former clerk of Scalia. But there's... there's <laughs> There's a great anecdote that Sutton tells about how he went to Scalia's uh, uh, chambers, okay, and uh, uh, Justice Scalia had two dozen roses, okay, um, and and Sutton wants to know what's he, you know, what who are the roses for, okay, and Scalia said, well, I'm going to go to uh, uh, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's chambers, and give her the roses for her birthday, right. And of course, Judge Sutton is just like, why are you doing that? You know, where, you know, where have these roses gotten you in, you know, in close five to four decided cases, okay? And, and Scalia's retort, I think, will resonate with me until I die, okay? He said, some things are more important than votes, okay? And again, and I tell my students this all the time, you guys are going to go work for government agencies. You're going to work in law firms. Some of you want to become lawyers and judges. You're going to do a lot of small group interaction. You're going to have to work with colleagues. And one of the fundamental choices you're going to have to make is, you know, how do I work with these people? Even when the group overall decides to do something I don't want to do. How do you work with them? Right? Just because they go ahead and think differently than you doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't worthy of your respect um, and your consideration. Um, and, you know, in, in neither one of them were hoping to change the other one's mind, right? I mean, you know, both, both Ginsburg and Scalia, you know, have said this w w with regularity, right? We didn't think we were going to change the other person's mind. But by interacting with the other, it was going to improve our thinking, and we just enjoyed their company, right? We just enjoyed their company. How often can you say that about people you work with?
right? Right? I mean, think about it. Or people who are in the opposite in the opposite stream from you. Like, <clears throat> we're so polarized now. How often do you sit down with those people and enjoy them as people? As, yeah. as people who, you know, aside from your political views or your, or your whatever, all of those things that separate you, there are so many more things that you have in common. They both had a deep love of the opera. They both had a deep love of good wine and good food, right? Like they had joining ground. They had place a place where they could meet each other that wasn't about, like I think probably they had a work relationship that was very powerful because they, they used each other's ideas um, to, to help formulate their own ideas about the law. But they also had this deeply personal relationship that I think sometimes we forget the people on the other side of us politically are people. And they are probably people with whom we have a great deal in common, more in common than we don't. They love their family. They love, they love sports. They love to, you know, I mean, I don't know. It, it's well, listeners. One of the things that Nee and I have talked, um, uh, you know, uh, off recording, if you will, um, is you know the people who we work with, uh, many of whom we enjoy, um, and and Nee has heard me talk at length uh, about my you know dear departed uh, good friend and colleague Herb Hirsch. Okay. I mean, Herb Hirsch and I, ideologically and politically, were polar opposites, right? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, Nia just talked about common ground, okay? There was so much common ground between the two of us um, that, thankfully, we didn't let our ideological differences, okay, spoil or stop us from finding that common ground. Because um, it really would have, it would have been terrible if we had not become friends, particularly in my estimation, okay? Um, but we had, we, we shared so much, right? From music to movies to sports, um, you know, uh, where we grew up, small towns in Pennsylvania, uh, how both of us, you know, for instance, uh, never aspired to be college professors. Both of us wanted to be major league baseball players. Okay. Okay. Um, um, and and uh, so, and at times, our, dis our intellectual disagreements shocked people because we, we, went at, we went at those conversations with the same amount of passion, okay, as we did discussing movies, or our favorite, you know, uh, uh, you know, crime mystery books, okay, um, or you know, discussing, you know, uh, basketball or whatever the case may be, right? You know, we both both had so much enthusiasm and passion for whatever we were discussing, right? I mean, the idea, you know, the idea, Nia, that you know, we would half-ass a conversation, okay, phone it in simply because the other person might disagree. Well, that was completely foreign to us, right? Completely foreign to us, right? 
you know, so we had colleagues who were like, oh my goodness, you know, you know, the, the, this is going to break out into a fist fight. And then we would turn around and say, hey, let's go get a drink. And people were like, how can you do that? We're like, well, of course we can, because we like each other. Okay. Yeah. It is, yeah. I think that that's what we need to remember. We, I think what, I think a powerful part of her legacy will be remembering that one of her best friends and most dear people in her life was a person that you would not have thought could sit in the same room together, like more than five minutes. And yet they created this beautiful, wonderful friendship and they still allowed each other the intellectual space to be themselves. Um, I don't know. That's I know we only have a few more minutes, Nia. Um, did you want to get to uh, a discussion of um, what her vacancy means for the 2020 elections? Um, I would, because I'm, I'm curious about where you think this is going to take us. In, in 2020, like, are we going to have a super contentious Brett Kavanaugh style knockdown drag out? Are we going to see it? Are we going to see a nominee at all? How, where, where are we going to be in three weeks, or six weeks? Okay, well, there, you just asked a number of questions. So I'm going to try to break it. No, that's all right. I'm going to try to break it down. Um, first of all, okay, uh, and, and this takes us back to the beginning of the podcast. Um, um, you know, we have a vacancy on the court, right? Both political parties um, uh, have a certain amount of hypocrisy in their stances about whether or not um, the current president with the current Senate should fill the vacancy. Uh, and, and, and you and I have both talked, again, off recording about how sad this is that almost immediately the conversation turned to, you know, will the president nominate somebody? And if so, will the Senate consider that nomination? Instead of taking a few days, maybe even a week or so, to fully appreciate a life well-lived, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, we immediately jumped to the politics, right? Oh, I just want to say for a moment quickly and bitterly, really? Like, she wasn't even buried before we were talking about this. And sure. by the way, Jewish burials, that's within 24 hours. Like, come on. Yeah. Can we at least, can we at least wait till Monday? She died on a Friday. Can we at least wait till Monday before we start talking about this? And, and they didn't. And no. I'm, I am angry at all sides for that, just in case anybody was wondering. Yeah, uh, I was not pleased. I wasn't pleased in how quickly uh, um, political considerations arose when Scalia died, um, um, because that was within like 48, 72 hours. Um, but nevertheless. Although, can I also side note something? I'm not normally, um, I think listeners regularly know that I'm not a huge fan of the president. Um, but when he came off of Air Force One or Helicopter One or whichever one that I can't remember what it's called, I guess whatever he's on is Air Force One, um, Marine One, I think. And they said Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. His immediate reaction was she was an incredible woman. Like 
he said the right thing immediately. And he didn't immediately get trapped into an, into saying anything else. He said she was an amazing woman. That's a yeah. great boss. Yeah. So in fairness to the president, that was the right thing to do. And I agree. Now, based on what the president has said, uh, by the end of the week that we're recording this, he will nominate somebody. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already indicated that the Senate, though he didn't specify when, the Senate will take up the president's nomination. So there's two considerations here. One, who will be the nominee? And then two, um, how quickly will the Senate um, consider uh, the president's nominee? A large part of this is has a potential impact on the upcoming election. So for instance, okay, um, at the time we're recording, there is roughly six weeks to the day, okay, before the election. Oh my gosh, you're right. Okay, it's it six weeks. early to the day. Yeah, six weeks to the day. Um, according to my research, and according to a number of other scholars, the last Supreme Court nominee from announcement to confirmation by the Senate that occurred in six weeks or less was John Paul Stevens in 1975. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so not something that happens that quickly. Uh, the, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the process has become much more protracted. Okay. So that's going to be a consideration. That's going to be a consideration. Then there's the electoral consideration, okay? You know, do the Republicans want an, uh, a nominee to be announced and confirmed before the election in an attempt to perhaps mobilize their base? Will they wait until after the election, okay, um, in an attempt to go ahead and mobilize their base as in, you need to reelect Republican senators because we need all of their votes, okay, to confirm the president's nominee, okay? Then we know that there are prominent Democrats who have said, if the president nominates somebody and the Senate votes on them, there is going to be, quote unquote, hell to pay, unquote, okay, um, if we regain control of the presidency and the Senate. So for instance, a number of Democratic senators have already said, we're gonna pull out, okay, the Republican Party's worst nightmare of legislation, okay, if uh, uh, Trump gets his nominee on the Supreme Court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, they're, they're, they are threatening to pack the court, grant statehood to both Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, because the assumption is both of them would be heavily democratic, okay? Um, consider an amendment to abolish the Electoral College, okay? Um, and to end the filibuster for even legislation, not just nominations, to the judiciary and the executive branch, 
but for all legislation. And thus the minority party in the Senate would have no structural tool to slow down the majority. Okay. Which by the way is completely not what the founders wanted, but okay. Yes, right? If you think about how I mean, the Senate how the Senate was supposed to be slow and deliberate compared to the House, right. you get rid of the filibuster, okay? Um, and, 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 and I understand why, okay, those in the majority want to get rid of the filibuster, okay? But remember, the filibuster is not only being used, okay, by racists and, you know, and, and senators who were in favor of discrimination. The filibuster is being used to go ahead and slow down the majority to pause and say, is this what we want to do? Right. Okay. Which was the point of the Senate, but. So in part, Nia, my answer to your question is both parties, and for that matter, both presidential nom uh, uh, nominees, okay, uh, presidential party nominees, have to take a calculus. They have to project how how will our behavior mobilize our base? And the other base. And the other base, right? So for instance, I have a number of students, okay, who have already said, because either they were huge fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or they're members of the Democratic Party. If the Republicans try to jam through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement, Okay, this is going to motivate me even more to elect the president's opponent. On the other hand, okay, if the opposition party is against the president's nominee, okay, this may mobilize the president's base. Oh, okay? sure. I mean, right? wouldn't they, would, they would say, oh, you don't like her, then, or we or him, but probably her. We want her a thousand times more than more. Her before because just because you don't like her like that's where we've gotten in this ridiculous current milieu that we're living in is that is the one everybody's acting bonkers and I, I there are words i could use but we're trying <laughs> to keep this podcast clean so i'm not going to use i'm going to use bonkers and say things like we're going to get rid of the filibuster and we're going to pack the courts and we've got by the way a, pa a court packing episode coming up that we'll, we'll have for you guys in quite a while a couple months but but you know these threats are and then the threats on the other side oh yeah we might have picked somebody who was slightly more mainstream, but now that you're starting to be like that, we're going to go find the hardest core person we can find. Like, it's it's bonkers. It's bonkers. It it is almost okay. Um, and again, wanted to break. Okay, as long-term listeners know, both me and I grew up in rural parts of the country. Okay. And a common expression, okay, we used to hear all the time was, <laughs> you know, hold my beer, okay, I'm going to top you, okay? That's what you heard up north and what you hear in the south is, hey, y'all watch this. But it's <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> okay. Hey, y'all watch this and hold my beer mean the same thing. Same thing, right? 
And, and, and something stupid is about to occur. Yeah, yeah, right? Okay, if you think, okay, you're over the top, no, 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 okay, I'm going to top you. And you're just kind of sort of like at some point, no. Right. No. Everybody needs to put down their beer and stop telling people to watch them. Like everybody just needs to stop. Yes, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I... I I, I mentioned this in my courts and politics class uh, yesterday, in fact. I said, you know, guys, you know, um, you know, there is a grand deal here, right? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, you know, the Republicans could go ahead and say to the Democrats, okay, fine, we won't nominate Ginsburg's successor. On the other hand, Democrats, you got to promise that if you regain control of both the presidency and the Senate, Okay, that you don't pull out this, you know, this wish list, okay, that goes ahead and trashes a number of institutions. You, right. we, we both got to back away, right? Right. There Everybody. is a deal here to be made. It won't be made, okay, but there's a deal to be made here, right? Do you think that it won't be made because we're just so polarized as a country? That's part of it. The other part of this is power. Po yeah, go ahead. Are we polarized as a country or are our politics polarized? Our politics are polarized. Our media is not helping, right? I mean, you've heard me say this before, okay? Um, if I was a publisher of a major newspaper, I would have you know, issued an edict. We do not talk politics about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing until like Monday or Tuesday of the following week. Right. Okay. But... I'm not a publisher of a newspaper, okay? Um, uh, I waited to record until, by the way, listeners, it's five days later, like. Yeah, five days later. Um, and, you know, both of us, you know, talked about doing it sooner and we held off. Um, uh, and I think for both of us, uh, it, it was beneficial for our headspace, right? right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, and I can go ahead and speak to this. Um, you know, I, I was not a big fan of Ginsburg's jurisprudence. I wasn't a big fan of Scalia's jurisprudence. Um, but they've been seminal figures in my professional life, okay? Um, and I respected the heck out of both of them. Um, I admired both of them for various reasons, oftentimes different reasons. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and I am a su Supreme, I study the court, um, and my court, okay, mine, okay, as though I possess it, right? My court's going to change now, okay? Um, and I study institutions, and institutions change when membership changes, Okay particularly somebody as important as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, okay? But our politics is polarized, right? Um, I did a, um, an interview for a local uh, TV affiliate yesterday. Uh, they went ahead and posted the interview uh, on their social media, and I read through some of the comments uh, uh, first thing this morning, and uh, I was appalled, okay, uh, by some of the comments. Um, the, just the vitriol, the, the, the anger, okay, um, in these comments. I was just like, 
this person just died. Okay. Um, but yet we're, we're translating it um, back into our political battles. Um, and um, we all need more dignity. Sure. And politics needs to be more dignified. It used to be, I think, a little more dignified than it is now. And the one good thing is that I think that that people are seeing it, that the swampiness is having the effect that both sides are discussing. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is I mean, that's a positive. At least nobody's saying, no, my side's doing this exactly right. Everybody's saying, nope, my side sucks too. <laughs> like, it's just not... It's oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 and I've said this, and I said this uh, yesterday in a couple uh, other press interviews, okay? Uh, right now, both political parties at the national level are engaged in, you know, constitutional hardball, you know, political hardball, okay? Um, and when you do that, what we've seen historically in this country is um, neither side wins, the danger is the institutions that these parties are trying, okay, to gov you know, take control of so they operate the levers of governing, the institutions get harmed in the process. Right. Okay. And that's where we start having people lose trust, right? I mean, if we're always going to view the court as a political uh, branch, then why should we go ahead and give any more weight to their rulings than any law passed by Congress or any regulation issued by the executive branch? If, if the president is always gonna go ahead and utilize opportunities at authority, okay, um, then of course, my president, if I like the next one or a future one, well, by God, they better use all of that authority too. Okay, and if the Congress, okay, dominated my, by my party engages in gridlock, okay, well, the opposition party, okay, big surprise when they're in control, what do they engage in? Gridlock, okay? I just, I'm telling you, Augie, when I am president, I'm going to send everybody home and say <laughs> we're starting over. <laughs> I'm going to send all the Supremes home and say, we're starting over. <laughs> the only people who are allowed to serve are centrist moderates. <laughs> Don't send me anybody who's not a centrist moderate who can't have a reasonable conversation with other people <laughs> and solve problems like rational folks. They all get, they all get a time outside that will look like a dictatorship, but it will be for everyone's best interest. So everybody gets a timeout. Everybody gets a time. Everybody has to go home and sit on their mat and take a nap and have a cookie and stop being so obnoxious. See, for me, I'm joking. If I ran on that, I would be elected tomorrow. I would be elected dictator for life because people would say, wait, you're going to have a moderate, like people have to actually work together and talk to each other. Dude, I'm in. I will, I will vote for you. See, for me, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've often joked, and me has heard this, okay? Uh, if I was elected president, um, the first thing I would do is uh, mandatory uh, uh, coffee and tea time, right? 
Okay, I I would go around uh, before I hold a press conference. Um, you know, I would just go ahead and make sure I have coffee with all the members of Congress, all the justices, okay, all the agencies he heads, okay, and the uh, the only rule of these uh, coffee and tea conversations is we can't talk politics. I just want to know who in the hell you are, right? Nice. I, okay, I just want to know who you are, right? You be okay. my vice president. <laughs> I'm sending the vice president over to have coffee or tea with you. Be prepared to talk about the Yankees. Or, hey, anything else you want to talk about, right? Or whatever team you like. You know, or, you know, how you spent the evening or, you know, what music you like or what, hey, what are your kids doing, right? You know, uh, oh, hey, you're putting a, you know, a, a shed in your backyard. Well, you know, hey, I'm going through that right now. Let's chat about that, right? Okay. Um, by chatter in chief. <laughs> and then when people start acting up, I'll say, I will call them and say, Augie's going to be over to your place for coffee. <laughs> be prepared to discuss <laughs> your latest actions. <laughs> and they will say, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Don't threaten. He's coming to talk to me like a dad, right? Like when your dad sits you down and says, and says, you know, I know that this is just how you act, so I'm disappointed, but let's work through it. <laughs> and I'm a little disappointed with how you've been handling the Senate lately, so let's talk about that. <laughs> and then I and then I would be able to just threaten. I'd be able to call them up and say, Don't make me send the chatter in chief. And they'd be like, No, ah. Actually, they would probably love that. They would probably love that. They would probably love somebody who treated them like a person and not like a political automaton. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it won't solve all the problems, but I mean, hey, at the same time, um, got to be better than what we have now. I mean, the 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 vacancy caused by Justice Ginsburg's death um, is really highlighting, um, shall we say, uh, some of the more negative features of the American form of democracy, um, and. I, I, like you, hope that what it leads to is a bunch of voters and a bunch of candidates who say, we can do better, um, and we have to do better. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, that's my hope. Um, I like that. I'm yep. that. That's a good hope. So, all right. Uh, thanks, Nia. Uh, by the way, listeners, uh, usually, uh, Nia and I come up with these topics together, um, but uh, the, this episode uh, uh, was uh, definitely uh, Nia's idea, and uh, I want to thank her for that opportunity um, uh, to talk about uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and her important legacy, um, not only as a justice, uh, but... Um, uh, there's a, a old expression in my family. She was the finest kind. Um, and um, uh, uh, we got a huge loss um, because of her passing. Yeah. Yep. She'll be missed. Thank you, Augie. Sure.
You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.